Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey, everybody. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, the entire archive, more than 570 episodes and counting, all of it is offered freely. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have uh, a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's wow. really beautiful. Big, 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 she has a new novel out from Catapult Press. It is called Sea Monsters. And I'm fortunate to have caught Chloe. She makes her home in London over in the UK. And she was out here uh, briefly on book tour and was kind enough to come over and talk with me. So that conversation is coming up basically right now. I do want to offer a bit of context as we get underway. Uh, you're going to hear Chloe and I talking about an author who is sadly no longer with us and who took his own life. Uh, his name, which we do not say clearly in the conversation, is Edward LeVay. So I just want you to have that bit of information so that you're not confused and wondering. Uh, Edward LeVay was a French author and published a small handful of books in his lifetime, most notably one called Auto Portrait, which is sitting right here on my shelf. And uh, when Chloe came over and sat down, she saw it and we started talking about it. So that's what initiated this particular line of conversation. We start out there and, you know, obviously the conversation takes off in uh, different directions thereafter, but I just want you to be oriented. Okay. 
I care about you. I don't want you to be confused. So uh, without any further ado, this is my conversation with Chloe Regis, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Sea Monsters. I did for, for several years because he was, he was living with my friend Aranza, who was one of my oldest friends from Mexico. They were living together in Paris. But I first met him in Mexico because he had a very strong interest in Mexico and Latin America and spoke Spanish. Oh, so I traveled there a few times, and um, yeah, the auto portrait. It's that sense of it's so strange because someone who wasn't who has such issues with his own existence, and yet this tremendous self awareness and habitation of his body and the way his body inhabited cities or every space he was in. Yeah, and like and, like hyper conscious of every thought and tendency and gesture. Uh, did you? But you sensed when you when you were with him that he was depressive and didn't want to be around. No, no, no. He was at times a bit somber, but and I knew I only knew from Aranza from his partner that he was depressive, and that he had an obsession with suicide. And he just p- handed in his final work, which was entitled "Suicide." Right. <laughs> in case you didn't, yeah. in but, case you didn't know. Yeah. But five days before, we had uh, um, five of us had um, a small group of us had dinner in Paris and we're making plans for the next time we met and then suddenly she rang me God I'm so she sorry came home yeah. that's terrible and uh, it feels like such a small world because my interest and my awareness of uh, LaVey's work is fairly recent and I you know I, I always find books it feels like a breadcrumb trail it's like an, a, one book will lead me to the next book or an author that I like will be talking about a book you know and so somehow I found him do you remember? I'm curious because he's not very well known at all. Yeah. Um, I feel like LeVay, I, I feel like, what was it? It's something about this interest I have in auto fiction or in working autobiographically because the book that I'm working on is in that vein. And I'm interested, I guess, in authenticity on the page and honesty. I'm like, this book is like really trying to take like a hyper rational approach, mm-hmm. like just the facts, you know, mm-hmm. like, like an absolutely no uh, pretense or embellishment. Uh, is kind of the effect of it. Yeah, everything's stripped away. It's everything, just, yeah. everything. It's just yeah. like a, it's like this big, and there's not even like if I'm recalling the page correctly, there's no chapter breaks. It's just this big block of text, mm-hmm. and the cumulative effect is powerful. But I think that, like, sort of morbidly, the effect becomes extra powerful once you know that he took his own life. You know, so it almost feels like part of the art in a weird way. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then the fact that he handed in this book, Suicide, a few days before he committed suicide, it feels very intentional. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I, you know, and it just feels like, wow, like six degrees of separation. Yeah, to walk in here and immediately see that book, it's quite extraordinary. Well, you're not the first person that I've talked to on this show who has shown up in this room and looked at that book and made a comment on it. Isn't that <laughs> odd? Uh, well, anyway, it's a pleasure to meet you. And uh, what kind of tour are you on? Are you all over the States right now? Uh, Only a few cities, New York, L.A., San Francisco, Houston, and then back to London. And then that, which which is where you're based. Mm -hmm. But you were born in New York, raised in Mexico City. Childhood in Holland. Childhood in Holland. Have spent time in Germany. You have your Ph.D. in, it's, it's, it's an interesting degree. It's like French poetics. And 19th century magicians. Okay. So let's start there. (laughs) 
because I read that and I'm like, how does anyone even know that they're interested in 19th century magic? Like, where does this originate for you? It was actually uh, my master's dissertation was on Baudelaire and the nocturnal in Le Fleur de Mal. And, um, and, Bo and Baudelaire's favorite artist was Goya. And so I was reading about Goya and because, of course, part of the fun of research is all the digressions, and the new paths, that, as you were saying, that one thing leads on into another. And so I was reading about Goya and his black paintings. Um, and, and one theory I happened upon was that his black paintings were inspired by the magic lantern spectacle of Phantasmagoria in 1822 in Madrid and that Goya had witnessed this and that these these macabre figures looming out of the wall or the canvas and that those had inspired his black paintings. Anyway, so then I began reading about magic lanterns and this very gothic kind of magic, magic lantern show called Phantasmagoria. And then there used to be in Paris a wonderful bookshop called the, the Bookstore of the Spectacle. La librairie du spectacle. And my father would go often, so I asked him to look for a book. Where in Paris was this? I think in the fifth or the sixth. I unfortunately, it closed down because the books were so expensive that most people would just go to browse. And they had books on clowns, shadow play, puppet theater, ballet, whatever you wanted. And also these pre cinema um, spectacles, like the Magic Lantern one. So my father went. Looking for, um, oh, and so the, the Phantasmagoria show was conducted by a Belgian named Robert Son. So I sent my father, and I, I saw that he'd written his memoir. So I sent my father to this bookshop, and instead he bought me um, those happy accidents in life where the wrong book is bought, but actually, again, it opens up this whole new world. So he, opened, he bought me a book by Robert Trudan, which was the, who was considered the first modern magician. Anyway, so. I began reading more and more about 19th century magicians and especially these two, Robert Son and Robert Todan, who had both written memoirs. And there's so much self-fashioning involved. And and then because I, my, my specialty was 19th century French poetry, I became interested in how the, the magicians of the period um, were performing magic whereas the, were, while the poets of the period really believed in it in a more transcendent way than modern magicians to a degree that exceeds like contemporary poets or 20th century poets. That's an interesting question. Probably. I guess it depends on the degree of madness involved. And, um, and in the 19th century, it was just on the cusp of an industrial revolution and, massive technological advances so it was some maybe easier to live magic on a day-to-day -day basis than after yeah I, 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 I always find that or at least in my immediate los angeles existence some of my favorite friends are poets and are I kinda, there many poets here uh yeah, yeah there are i yeah. mean there's a community i've gotten to know them just because i'm literary and you know there's yeah. there's a, there's a quite a few of us but there's not that many all in mm. all. So you sort of get to know one another if you stick around long enough. And I guess I just envy the, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to cheapen it by using, I mean, mystical. I don't know. There's something sort of, mm. 
they seem open to the magic of life on a consistent basis, and I enjoy their company. Hmm. Well, it's true. You know, my father's a poet, and he his experience of just on a daily basis, whether he's at home or in the garden or in another city or museum, but he's so receptive to, you know, I mean, but something I think that made me a writer was just being very aware early on of these levels of observation and also noticing very often the more liminal and, you know, marginalized people on this, any society or, in the corners of a room or in any space somehow what's overlooked because of him was it, would he point them out to you or yes he often would point them out hmm. and so just a great awareness of you know, what's less visible to the eye and yeah i suppose like i suppose that would be good instruction and it would be kind of an i mean i'm thinking as a parent now but if you're a poet and that's your stock and trade. You're sort of noticing these things. And I guess you'd point them out to your kid. <laughs> Were you read to a lot? I, I would imagine too. By both my parents, my mother in English and my father in Spanish. They'd read to us. Huh? I envy you. Like, like this, uh, international upbringing, multilingual. I feel like it's a richer upbringing than just being stuck in one country. That's a lucky mean, right? Yeah. I mean, there's also a sense of rootlessness, and um, and when I was younger, of course, it meant making new friends every few years, and and, and then even just and then in my early adulthood, when I went to Berlin, there are moments that felt like sort of self-imposed exile, and there are days of you know, very acute solitude, and you say, well, why do you bring this on yourself when you could be in a city where you know, you know, I don't know, two hundred people and speak the language fluently and but by the end of my time in berlin i, I felt very rooted there too and but um so you were born in new york and then just to track it you moved your family moved to mexico city no when i was eight months old we moved to holland then okay so to holland and i spent and then we spent one year in Bern in switzerland as well and my father well he's a poet but he was also the mexican ambassador to holland and switzerland so that's a good gig Poet slash ambassador. <laughs> wow. Hey, folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. So what, and 
This is something I'm interested in, is uh, people who work in diplomacy. You show up. He's the ambassador to Holland from Mexico. So what do you do? You just you, you hobnob with people? You basically just introduce, like you're trying to ingratiate Mexico to these countries. That, that's, that's your job. Yes, especially he was lucky because in countries like the, the UK or Spain or Germany, countries where there's a lot of trade, then you have to meet with a lot of businessmen and... For those, they, they do, I think the government chooses career diplomats. But in countries like Holland and Switzerland, I think it's it, what you say, just representing your country as attractively as possible, going to many dinners, some not terribly exciting, and receptions. and Writing poetry during the day. <laughs> Lots of time to write. Yeah, a lot of time to write poetry. So, you don't have to be home by two. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. I need to be an ambassador. <laughs> I'm going to be a podcaster ambassador. But don't forget, you have to represent your government. So uh, not now, maybe yeah, not in the now. future. Give me, a, give, me, give me a few years. But once we get the, this ship righted, hopefully. <laughs> uh, and so you are, in, in, when you're in Holland, are you in, what city are you living in? We are in The Hague and Vassenau, which oh. is... I don't, um, even, I don't know Vassenau. Where's that? It's a suburb of The Hague. Oh, it is. I'm pretty sure, yeah. And it's, it's where a lot of the embassies are. Just the Hague, I just know, that's just like the international prison, right? Isn't that where they, <laughs> they put like international criminals? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they have a wonderful museum, the Mauritz House. That has, um, I'm pretty sure that's where Vermeer's view of Delft is. It has some glorious paintings, that museum. Okay, um, so and how long are you there? Like, till what age? Till seven, and then we moved to Mexico. So, and then I was in Mexico until, so I spent all my late childhood and adolescence in Mexico. And then when I was 17, I came to college here for four years. Where'd you go to college? At Har to Harvard. So it's, you know, the East Coast. And so, okay. So seven-year-old Chloe moves to Mexico, completely different cultural context, obviously. So that's that's because I moved as a kid, but I moved within the United States. It's different. I mean, to move country is that adds a different element. Mm. So you show up at age seven, like what kind of kid were you? Did you did very you, shy? Okay, and it was difficult too because I entered fourth grade, or maybe I was eight then. My my sister was in first grade, so for me, I'd always spoken Spanish with my father, but I had a foreign accent. So at first, the other children uh, didn't see me as Mexican and. And then I also felt shy. I mean, now it seems silly, but at the time I felt shy that my father was a poet. When That's like cool. Yeah. Well, now I, I definitely think so. But at the time I thought um, it was eccentric and the other children had, I don't know, industrialist fathers. <laughs> but um, so I was quite timid. And at school I would, uh, would spend lunchtime in the library reading. So those are formative years. So now I look back and see how important it was. But at the time I was miserable. And my mother would always say to me, just wait until you go to college and you'll find more like-minded people. And then my last year in Mexico City, my sister and I began going out. And then we met a lot of friends, a lot of people, uh, um, young Mexican musicians and artists. And um, we went to certain, there was a goth club we'd always go to and... Were you, did you dress, like, did you have the goth, like, aesthetic happening? My sister and I were some mini goths, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, like, prior to that, were you pretty much, uh, like, a loner? You... Pretty much. At school, 100%. And, yeah, until the age of 16, 17, I was very, very solitary. 
And just reading. Reading, yeah. I'd, weekends, I'd stay home weekends. My father would recommend me books. We'd spend hours in front of his bookshelves, and he'd pull out a lot of poetry. No wonder you wound up at Harvard. <laughs> yeah, at least the, all those years served for their purpose. Okay, and so you start going out to this goth club. Like, why? Like for, first of all, you're into goth. You're addressing the part. Well, the music we listened to is... We listened to almost all British bands, and we loved... Well, obviously, we loved The Smiths and The Cure, Susie and the Banshees, Nick Cave, um, Sisters of Mercy, Joy Division. And so we met a lot... We began meeting a lot of young Mexicans who also listened to that music, and most of them dressed in black. And You're like, these are my people. <laughs> now, and Sea Monsters is the story of a teenage runaway and your previous books deal in kind of your European existence. Mm -hmm. This is your first foray into yeah. your Mexican experience. Yeah. And, uh, I did a little bit of snooping around and researching and this story has some basis in truth. You ran away with a boy as a teenage girl mm -hmm. to your parents dismay. I, yeah, it was, I can't believe to this day that I did, did that to them because I was a shy bookish daughter. And you were, you were like the perfect kid. And then suddenly one day I didn't come home from school oh. and I was actually a year younger than in my character in the book. I was 16 and the oh. boy was 19. Oh my God. This so, is my, I have a daughter who's eight and I'm like, this, this stuff <laughs> keep an eye on her. I was going to say, you got to be careful. And even the good kids can. So what did this boy, what did he say to you? Let's get out of here. Let's go. Yeah, he said, let's go to Cipolita, let's go to the Oaxacan, to the beach. And it's wonderful at this time of year. And What I time said, of year was it? It was autumn. It was late September, early October. And I said, but my parents won't let me. He said, well, don't tell them. And well, at that age, I was very taken aback. But then I thought, well, here's a chance to spend some time with this very elusive character who, you know, next week might like someone else. So unless <laughs> I say yes... <laughs> Yeah, madness, Dream, I, uh, dreamy goth boy. Was he gothic? Yeah, we actually, he actually listened more to reggae and he loved the cure. He listened to a lot of the cure, but he also listened to a lot of reggae. And is, was that, how did that mesh with your goth sensibility? Not entirely, but I respect reggae. I do like, I did like it. So my wife can't stand reggae. No. I, I like reggae. She's like, <laughs> it's the same thing over and over again. She doesn't like a lot, a lot of my music. She's just like, you're crazy. But uh, you go to, it's called Zipolite? Zipolite. Yeah. Zipolite. Mm -hmm. You go there. You, did you pack a bag? Did you at least a pack? A small bag, yeah. Okay. So you had some stuff. You get on a bus. Mm -hmm. You go there. How long are you there before your parents find you? I think it was five days. But the fantasy collapsed almost immediately. As these things do. Yeah. As soon as we arrived, I thought, what am I doing? Well, it's so, you know, I mean, A, there's the teenage romance thing, but there's also this tendency, at least in me, and I think it's not exclusive to me, to think that, like, change of location is going to lead to some magical transformation. Mm -hmm. It's like going to be like a shortcut. If I just, like, remove myself from this physical environment and move myself, suddenly things are going to, like, you know, fix themselves. And it's just not true. No. And it's a, as soon as you get there, you spend a couple of days, you're like, wow, now I'm unhappy here. <laughs> exactly. You know. So, did your parents like alert the authorities? Was there like a was there like a police, you know, yeah. effort to try to track you down? Yeah. Well, um, once they discovered where I was, 
and I put my sister through hell. She's in, in the novel. My character doesn't have a sister, but in real life, my younger sister, who was my best friend and ally in life, um, she was fourteen at the time. I told her about it, and she she promised not to tell my parents. So oh. I can't believe to, she was extraordinary. She didn't tell them. She'd see them crying in the morning and absolutely distraught, in a frenzy, not knowing where I was. And she just very calmly said, "Don't worry, she'll be back soon. She's okay." And didn't tell them. And they discovered who I was from by a note in my bag from a friend in class saying, "Oh, you're going to have so much fun in Oaxaca with this boy." So then they tracked down his parents. It's, it's very analog, by the way. There's not like a cell phone. There's no digital record. Exactly. It's late 80s. So you can still go off piste. You can just, you're untra untraceable. Wow. And, and then my father knew the governor. So the governor lent him um, policemen and a chauffeur. And there was a whole search party looking for me. I had no idea, of course. Oh, my God. And, you know, I find it kind of endearing that your sister didn't rat you out. Me too. That's sort of that's sort of sweet. And she, to this day, she reminds me she was grounded, whereas I was never grounded because I, when I got home, my parents were so thrilled to have me back that I wasn't punished. Whereas she was grounded for not telling them where I was. Well, that's like a, that's a real trauma to visit on parents. I mean, like your worst fear is the worst your thing child, you can do to a parent. Yeah, yeah, your child goes missing, and obviously, your intent was not to traumatize. You I just, just wasn't thinking. You just weren't thinking. So it took you however many years to get around to addressing this on the page. You've written two other books prior mm -hmm. to this, mm -hmm. didn't touch it. And then finally you got to a point where you said, you know what, I want to go back and I want to revisit this. What, what was it that uh, brought you to that point? Yeah, for a long time, I just wasn't ready to return to Mexico. And I'd written earlier versions of just the, that one runaway story that there were earlier incarnations, but, um, but very short versions of it. And then I just knew when I finished my last novel, I said, okay, Chloe, now you're ready to turn to Mexico and to your past. And then it took several years because I just, um, I was searching for the right form for it. And then because I, I create a lot of characters and other stories around that one episode. So it took, yeah, it took quite a few years to feel happy with the way I, the structure and, and the way I'd used that material from my past. Did you, do you, do you consider your time in Mexico where the, was it, was it an unhappy period of your life? Not at all. No. Um, no, I feel like it was, you know, the antechamber to, to adulthood or to what I became. Yeah. You know, it's like all that time with books. I mean, I'm, and I'm imagining you went to a good school. Yes. My sister and I had scholarships, but it was, it's the most expensive private school. It's called the American school foundation. So it's bilingual and a very good education, especially if you want to later study abroad. And, um, there were many, many spoiled children at that school. That's an education in and of itself. Yeah. Just to be, yes, I, anthropologically. I, that's what I'm saying. But yeah, I've, I've, had people, I've had people on this show who uh, have talked about like their boarding school experiences in that, like in that light where they were kind of a fish out of water there and you get to see kind of how the other half lives. Mm -hmm. No, those years that, that experience makes you that really, and you learn to be resilient in a way that, 
Oh, yeah. You may otherwise never have to. No wonder you were in the library reading books. You're like, these people are assholes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So did you have your sights set on Harvard? Did you want to go there from a young age? Or like, how did you wind up in Boston? Well, my mother, she went to Bryn Mawr and she, well, she always, my father would have been happy had we stayed in Mexico. But we decided, uh, my mother decided for us, for me and my sister, that we should study in the United States. So she actually chose the schools I should apply to. And I got into five of the six. Damn. The rejection letter was the first one. I was from Swarthmore. And I was so upset. And I thought, oh, no, this sets a precedent. And then, but then I got into Harvard, Princeton, Yale. and, and uh, well, Look at you. Know, but it was between Harvard and Yale, and I couldn't decide because I wanted to study comparative literature, and I knew that Yale had a very good program, too. And um, Yale, by the way, has an excellent program in 19th century, what is it, magic? <laughs> French poetry magic. <laughs> yes, that's world-renowned. <laughs> so you, get, you, you decide on Harvard, obviously. I decide on Harvard. You show yeah. up in Boston. And I hadn't been separated from my parents for more than, well, those five days of my life. So it was actually very difficult at first. And I, all the Americans seemed so autonomous and mature and independent already. And I realized, you know, coming from Mexico, how what you, that as a teen, you're still, still, you're still in such a closely knit atmosphere at home. And That's how it's going to be for my kids. They're not, they're <laughs> not getting out of my sight now that I've met you and heard this story. <laughs> Uh, but that's sweet too. That sounds like you, you know, you had like such a good family life, um, and like good parents. Yeah. They're still my, my parents and my sister are still my best friends in the world. Still... So you get to Harvard and even though it was a, I'm sure it was a big adjustment. And like you say, it was your first time being separated for more than five days. You had made these moves. You had, uh, you know, had to, um, integrate yourself into new schools and new countries and environments before. So it wasn't entirely new to you. Uh, did you like it? Did you show up and find your spot relatively quickly? Pretty quickly. The first year I made some very important friendships there. And to this day, I'm, um, still close to most of the people I met. Um, and it was, um, and then one of my professors, uh, a cultural historian named, who was actually British named Simon Sharma is still, one of my best friends, but I, I took some of his lectures and at first I was too shy to go meet him. And then towards the end of my four years, I went to his office hours and finally met him. So it's difficult. The only thing about Harvard is that you have these extraordinary professors, but, um, unless you have a burning question or you're very self-possessed, you often don't go into their office hours and actually meet them. So you go to lectures and, but the, then you have, um, smaller seminars, and seminars with the teaching assistants. Whereas my sister went to Princeton and she had the opposite. Socially, it was a bit of a disaster and she was very unhappy, but she had a lot of access to her professors. It's much smaller classrooms. And so, I don't know, as an undergraduate experience, we had very contrasting ones, but... Um, Are Harvard... Because, you know, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. Are these instructors, like, electrifying to listen to and watch? Many of them are. They are, okay. Because yeah. I was just like trying not to fall asleep in my classes. <laughs> but at Harvard, they can really perform. Yeah. I guess they should. Um, so after the first year, I missed Mexico. And I still, you know, I'd, every summer I'd go back. And then usually I'd have a boyfriend there and feel very 
settled back in my old room and with my parents. And then I'd have to wrench myself out of that existence and back. So every summer it was back to Mexico Mm -hmm. city. And were you, I know you were studying comparative literature, but were you thinking of being a writer? I always wanted to be a writer, but the the question was always when to begin and whether I felt ready. Well, and also, did you feel any like, oh God, my dad's like a poet slash ambassador. Mm-hmm. Like, do I even try? Did you feel a sense of, uh, the, the weight of expectation and definitely. And he also writes novels. So I, so I knew from early on, I'd write in English. So at least have a different language, write in a different language. So that was essential. Let's plug your dad. What, what's his name <laughs> and what has he written? <laughs> Many, but well, Homero Adithis, Homero Origes. And he, I translated a book of his in 2016 called The Child Poet, which is about his childhood in a small Mexican village where the monarch butterfly winters oh, okay. each year. And he's also an environmentalist. He is, in 1985, he founded a group called the Group of 100 that was comprised of 100 artists, writers uh, in Latin America. And he's campaigned a lot for the monarch butterfly and the gray whale and sea turtles. And All these things that are like under threat. Yeah. Yeah. Migratory species suffer a lot because of wherever they go, there's man's enemy. Well, so you uh, make the leap when? Like, would you have a moment of, is there a line of demarcation between uh, you thinking about being a writer and you saying, I'm doing this? Do you remember it? Well, then I I spent my 20s, then I went to England and I I did a master's and PhD. So I I prolonged or put off the moment. So I was in academia for most of my twenties. And then, and there were days, especially when I was finishing my dissertation, I was thinking, why am I doing this one? I know I want to be a writer and I don't have the rigor or the discipline or just my brain works differently. I want to be writing myself and not writing about other people's writing. Um, and, and it wasn't really until I moved to Berlin. So I finished, so I was at Oxford for my graduate studies and I finished and then, um, I received a letter from the home office saying when I was just nearing the end of my, the home office of one in England, it's called the home office is what would it be here? The, uh, well, the ones who are in charge of visas. Oh, okay. So I received a letter saying you, um, we see that your student visa is ex- about to expire. Can you please leave the country within 10 working days? And that's after living in England for seven years. So it was like having the carpet pulled from under me. So then I thought, where do I go? I thought, well, I know I've, I've spent time in Berlin. It sound, seems like the perfect place to go write my first novel. So I moved to Berlin and I thought it was just going to be for a few years. It ended up being nearly six. And that's why I wrote my first novel. I worked part-time at the literature festival there. And, um, so how many languages do you speak fluently? Four. Then, well, I don't know. French and German are rusty because I never use them anymore. Still, I feel inferior. (laughs) No, I do. I wish I could speak other, you know, it's one of these, uh, it's never too late. (laughs) I know. I know. I got to figure out how to do it though. Like I've tried using, um, what do you call it? I forget the name. I forget the name of the audio program that you listen to. Oh, um, the Rosetta Stone? Yeah, mm-hmm. Rosetta Stone. I've tried doing that, but I just I didn't stick with it long enough. I think you have to live someplace and really be immersed. Yeah. Is that how you learn? Full immersion, yeah. Because I'd learned, I'd studied German in the classroom, but it was so different from having to speak it on a daily basis. And then, So you, you have a, you know, 
parents speaking English, your parents speaking Spanish. You took French in like what junior high and high school, mm-hmm. and then you took German in college. Okay, and then you get there. How long before you were like speaking German? Well, I had um, what really helped because, as you probably know, West Germans speak such splendid English that it's actually hard to practice your German because they just want to speak English. Right. And who has the patience if you're at a party at night? To, you know, they just the shortcut. They just you start speaking German, then they immediately. That's lapse. what happens to me in France <laughs> with my really bad French. They're just like, dude, just stop. Like, I speak English. Yeah, we've, we've heard enough. It's hard to practice. But I had what really helped me in Berlin was I had two friends who were East German, who'd who'd learned Russian in school and not not English, and so they didn't speak English. So those two friends who were wonderfully patient, I, I just spent. I would go for long walks, and just speak German. And they forced your hand. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you in you know you decided you were going to work on a novel. Did you know what the novel was? Like how much did you have when you made the leap, or did you just say you know what I'm going to just start waking up. And sitting down and trying this every day. I had a vague idea for a collection of short stories, and the novel actually grew from out of one of the stories. A young woman in Berlin goes for a walk, and that was it. That was it. And she's with her two East German friends trying to learn. <laughs> and I left them out of it. Oh, you did. Yeah, good. You got to be the star. You can't share the stage. <laughs> Uh, so that was it though. You, you were working on that story and then at some point realized that it was bigger than a story. Mm-hmm. And then the novel and, um, the last draft I wrote after many, many drafts, I wrote in three months, just going every single day to the art library, the Kunstbibliothek, which is near Potsdamer Platz. I'd go every day, Monday through Saturday or Friday. And then there's another library across the street and then I'd, I'd work and Finally, it was ready. How many drafts? Countless ones. I can't remember, but countless. And and some, but at some point you knew it was out. It was. Rare. I knew it just fell into place, and and then I sent it to this agent in New York, and slowly. Well, you know, it's always that terrifying moment when something you've lived with for years enters the larger, the wider world. Um, but somehow being in Berlin, I, I felt very far away from the New York publishing world. Safe. Uh, so, but you, did you have anybody read it? Yeah, I had a few friends read it. What about your dad? He only read, my sister and my mother are the ones who read early drafts. And my father only once it's published. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel with my, I'm just like, don't bother until it's actually a thing. But your mom and your sister are early readers. They're early readers. Do you, yeah. Because this is the thing. Like I think there is such a thing as too many cooks in the kitchen, but I also think there's great value in having really good early readers who can be mm-hmm. a, a filter or a barometer mm-hmm. for you. Like, it sounds like you have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very important not to have too many people look at it or offering advice. You don't want too much input because then even if you don't agree with it, it just lodges somewhere in your head. Yeah, it can, it can yeah. muck things up. Yeah. So you have to have people, I think, I guess the point is that you just, have to, it's good to have early readers, but you have to select them carefully. Exactly. Yeah. So are your mom and your sister, the two that you trust the most? Yes. They, they know you. I mean, yeah. you know, so they can, they probably have as good a sense of your work from that perspective as anyone could. Yeah. And if they tell you something's not working right, are they generally right? They are. I mean, they're, they tend to read more. 
Well, actually, my sister, she's a filmmaker. And so because she's written scripts, she's very focused on structure often and plotting. And I'm not interested in plotting. So. Right. All these things that novel, like novelists of, uh, in the literary vein are like, what? <laughs> but I think it's actually like I've, I've done a little bit of both. And I think it's like the very formalized structural concerns of writing screenplays can be helpful when it comes to working, even if you're in an unplotted mm-hmm. avant-garde literary yeah. you know, realm, just having this, some, this sense of the way story, like a story is put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't hurt. No. Yeah. And everything has a narrative. Uh, so there's always a way of describe. There's always a forward movement of sorts. Do you, do you read the kind of stuff that you write? I'd like to think so. Because, because well, some people like read, like, you know, they're, they're novelists, but they only read nonfiction or they write literary fiction, but they actually love to read like crime novels or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Yeah. And I read, well, I mean, I do read a lot of nonfiction and poetry, but I, but the fiction I read, I, I hardly read any contemporary fiction. Mm. What do you read? Uh, mostly first half of 20th and 19th and a lot in translation, I guess. Who are some of your favorites? One of my very favorite writers is Thomas Bernhardt, Austrian. Um, Kafka, of course. Um, Rilke, I like a lot. Um, A lot of French poets. So a lot of poetry, but also... um, I, I, I like J.G. Ballard a lot. There's some 20th century, I mean, more recent English writers I like. I like to read poetry like as a way to sort of get the gears moving in my head before I write. Mm-hmm. Do you ever do that? Yeah. Because like, I, I, sometimes I talk to people that are like, you know, I, I work, and then after I'm done, I read. And I'm like, well, how do people do that? I feel like... After no, I agree. I'm, I think reading first is better. Yeah, because after I'm done writing, I'm just like, oh, forget it. I don't, I don't want to look at more words. I need to like go for a walk. Uh, but I find, you know, that it's nice sometimes to read poetry. Um, I don't know. It works, it works on a different layer of my brain than reading narrative nonfiction or fiction. Yeah. It's this distillation of, well, of thought and imagery. And yeah, I also find it very inspiring to read mm. before once it's down to write. Do you write poetry? No. I remember a haiku when I was 16 about a shadow. <laughs> Do you, do you remember it? I think it's shadow. Why do you follow me at dusk? You'll go home. Or, no, well, I don't know if that's seventeen syllables. But something like that. Very goth, <laughs> right? It's extremely goth, shadowy haiku. Um, so your first novel had like a great reception. Yeah, I mean, for a small literary novel, I was happy with. Um. Um, yeah, here it was published by well, Black Cat, which is an imprint of Grove, and um, didn't uh, it win some fancy French award? Yes, it won the first foreign language, first foreign debut novel. That's good. First one. Yes, that was very nice. No money attached, but it was still very nice. Oh, it sounds great. It's yes, good, it's good to put on the resume. Yeah. So, uh, just because so many of my listeners are writerly or aspiring or working on a book. 
like you are working on this manuscript, you send it to New York to some agent. Like, how did you even know where to send it? Were you just blind submitting or did you have a friend who knew somebody and you get the, the manuscript into the agent's hands and that was it? That was the agent you went with or did you have to go through a process? No, well, I had my godmother who was at an agency. She recommended another agent. I asked her, so I had good advice. And she said, she had many suggestions, but she said, why don't you send it first to this young woman who is actually has been in foreign rights, but now she's going to become an agent herself named Anna Stein. Oh, yeah. So I sent it to Anna, who's now at ICM, but at the time she was a... Maybe Aitken Alexander. Anyway, I sent it to her, and and then I was thrilled when the, when she wrote to say that. You never expect it because, of course, uh, one's always braced for rejection and or silence. That's my natural posture. You know? <laughs> well, and it's hard because you know you're trying to find in an agent, especially if you're working with literary fiction, because it's hard to sell. You really need to find somebody who understands you and your work and is mm-hmm. genuinely responsive to it. Yeah. I mean, at least that's the, uh, it seems to be the situation because I feel like for agents, it's a tall order to try to find a fit in the marketplace for it. So something that I think writers often miss is, uh, that it's emotionally difficult for agents, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like to ha- they don't want to have to report bad news. They, mm-hmm. You know, the, a lot like mm-hmm. the, the good ones anyway, take the, the rejections hard as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think you need to, um, if you can find somebody who's enthusiastic about your work in a genuine way, it will serve you, um, going forward because, if you hit resistance in the marketplace, they're more likely to stick with you mm-hmm. than if they're kind of like, oh, I think I can sell it. And then it doesn't work out. And mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, whatever. You, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So and I've many writer friends who immediately their impulse is to blame their agents for anything that doesn't happen the way they dreamt it would. But, um, but I think it's important to have a certain degree of self-awareness and just know that, you know, if you write something literary, you're not too commercial. You consider yourself very fortunate if your agent does find a home for it or yeah. a few foreign rights, but translations, but, um, it's not necessarily their fault. If no, it's tough. Don't deliver it's, them. Well, that's tough. And it's just, you know, I think the, the reality is that there's going to be in any given year, a very small handful of literary work, like works of literary fiction that really find a readership mm-hmm. and everything else you know, regardless of the quality of the work is going to be vying for smaller audiences. That's just Mm -hmm. the way it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, And the big houses have huge publicity machines. So if you have, if you get a big advance at Knopf or Random House, uh, they just have probably 20 20 people working on publicity. Also, of course, to get their money back. Right. Whereas if you're at a smaller publishing house, then I mean, I have to say my experience with Catapult has been extraordinary and actually much more positive than at the previous two houses that were my last one at Harcourt. It was a disaster. Nothing happened. Nothing. Yeah. I I remember when my book came out, it was like the week before I was like, Oh my God, they're paying attention. And there, there was all this action. And then like there was the publication day. And then after that, it was just like crickets. (laughs) 
they, <laughs> they were on to the next. It's just the way it goes. I mean, yeah. uh, so I, I guess you gotta, you gotta hope for the big advance so that they feel like a need to recoup. Is that the dream scenario? Yeah. But of course, if you're with an independent, a small independent house, then they just can't but with, give when, you a big advance. But with a smaller house, sometimes you get more hands-on treatment. Yeah. That's like, been my experience. And they've been absolutely wonderful. And catapults and in England I'm with a much larger house with Chadron Windus which is part of vintage random house that's a very English sounding imprint Chateau and Windus yeah. it's Victorian yeah um, but because I've been there since my first book I have a very happy relationship with him so you finished this first novel in Berlin you, how, how many years did you say you were there seven years Nearly six. Okay. Yeah. And, and then, and yeah. then what, what happened that brought you out of Germany and to the UK? Well, because I, so I'd been in the UK for my graduate studies and then I just felt very nostalgic, even though I loved Berlin and I'll always be part of the main constellation. But I always said to myself, I'll only return to England once. I'll only leave Berlin once I finish my book and have, have found a publisher. I said that for myself. So once I had a publisher and I thought, okay, well, soon it will be time to leave um i then applied for yeah, from visa in england and then because i now was returning as a published writer it was somewhat easier conquering hero <laughs> yeah, so it was yeah, quite satisfying to return um that way and then um yeah and then my second novel was set in england with a section in france and that came out in 2013. And have you spent a lot of time in France? I have quite a bit. Um, my parents, oh, my father was more recently ambassador to the UNESCO in Paris for three years. So I went a lot. I spent quite a bit of time then. And then for research, I've always had to go. But I also have friends there and I love visiting. I wouldn't want to live there. Why I prefer not? Londoners. I find the daily interactions quite difficult. Hmm. I find, um, and then I, I absolutely love 19th century French culture and some early to mid 20th, but now it feels a lot of its glory feels more vestigial. And, I mean, of course there's writers like Edouard Levé and they're very interesting, more recent writers that have come out of France, but, um, I, I absolutely love the city, but I think I, for daily life, I prefer London or Berlin. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what does your writing routine look like in London? You still writing at library? In the mornings at home, and then I have lunch, and then I live very close to the British Library. So most days I walk there or take the bus if it's raining, which is half the time. Mm. And just have some sort of structure. I feel it's very important, especially if you're if if you live alone and are self-employed and have you just have to self-impose some sort of structure. Yeah. So, and then I go, I get cabin fever. I go stir crazy by three or four in the afternoon if I haven't left the house yet. So most afternoons I go to the house, go to the library to around six or seven and then come home. And then often I go out later, but to the goth clubs, <laughs> is that what you're doing? No longer. No, there's probably some aging goths in Camden, but you um. got to get in there. <laughs> come on. Um, so I want to talk to you about writing a protagonist who is at least to some degree a version of your teenage self. I mean, you're writing from some experience. Mm -hmm. 
And there is such great detail and such like a lived in quality uh, to this character. I'm, I'm always curious about how easy people find it to access, especially if they're writing about a younger version. Mm-hmm. Like, did all of it come back to you after all this time? Like to the teenage stuff where all those memories right there, do you have a really good memory? I do, but my sister has an even better one. Mm. So she helped a lot with, um, with summoning back some of those details. And we are in touch with several friends from that era. But I think just looking at a photograph, sometimes it just all comes back. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I was interested in creating a character who, who resembled my younger self. But I think of it as my adolescence sort of reimagined. It is, I, it really is that just a reimagining of my own adolescence. But, um, but I, sometimes I feel like all three of my novels are, even though it doesn't seem that we're actually equally autobiographical and not autobiographical, there's a lot of invention in all three of them. And for this one, I mean, I've, I've had, I've had to say that I've said this several times but I think that um, I really, the great challenge with this book was that I had to feel free with my past. And my father kept reminding me as a writer, he kept saying, use the material however you want. You're not betraying your own past by changing things. And you weren't worried about like re-traumatizing your parents by writing. Like, <laughs> no, I'm wanna... just worried about the boy I ran away with yeah. if he ever sees the book. <laughs> so you're not in touch with him. No. My sister's friends with him on Facebook though. So, What's he up to today? I think he, he's the DJ or something. Yeah, he's an eco cafe on the beach somewhere. Of course he. Yeah. Tulum, I think so. Uh huh. It's kind of spiritual. And yeah. 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 Okay. I might have to go down there. What's the name of the eco cafe? I think it was. I can't remember. I think it was called something like Eco Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not make this hard on people. <laughs> um, so what I find too is that because I always say I have a bad memory, people will bring things up to me and I'll just be like, what, you know, like the, the, telling me things that I did or said or places that I was, and I just have no recollection of it. But I don't know if that's entirely accurate. I think sometimes just because you haven't been thinking of it, it just gets buried. Mm-hmm. And so once you start to root around, mm-hmm. like one memory sort of leads to the next. And yeah. It's like a puzzle kind of. Yeah. Was that the case for you? I mean, just, yeah. Or was it all right there, I guess, is the question. I mean, like, it, it's just, I'm, I'm worried about my recall, essentially. <laughs> I guess it varies a lot on whether it's, you know, memories. What's difficult, say, places you frequented often, like this club that my sister and I would go to that's in the book, but we went so many times that, but the memories just become condensed into one night and they're all variations, you know, on a theme in a way. But so that, I feel like that, compressive um, tendency of memories that if you went to one place over and over again, it all becomes one memory. You yeah. think, well, like my entire teenage life was just like the mall, my little Midwest. In California? No, oh, no, 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 no. I'm from like a boring Midwest. I'm from Indiana. Uh, that's well, where to I'm me, that's place. exotic. <laughs> well, <laughs> you might need to go to Indiana before you, you know, you might reevaluate, but it was just like, that was what we did. We went to this fucking mall and just walked around and just like, saw people and were like, Hey, is that what you, is that what you did in Mexico city? It sounds like, well, no, <laughs> you're like, we actually went dancing. Yeah. And interactions are quite charged. So, <laughs> How so? What do you mean? 
Well, there was just a lot of energy and people were coming at Nueve, you know, there were different social classes and backgrounds and um, there was a gay goth. Many of the nights were gay. So everyone felt sort of, it was a club for misfits also and people who, and the owner of the club um, was a Frenchman. He saw night as a cultural in, enterprise. So they often what, had... Was that the name of the club? It was, no, it's called El Nueve. Nine, which oh, okay. is at number nine Londres Street. And um, so there were also magazine launches and drag queen shows and a lot of transvestites there. Um, so it was just a place where people felt very three, free. It was quite theatrical. It was a theater to it all. That's but, cool. And your parents knew you were going there? No. No. No, my father had read that it was dangerous. There, there are often shootouts there. So, my, so we would always say we're going somewhere else. My sister and I would just invent or just mention another club on the same street and say we were going there. So when did they find out that you were going to this place? Did they ever, I mean, I guess in your work? Years later. Yeah. By the way, dad, <laughs> I mean, there's just like, you think, you know, and this is the thing is that I think I know my kids, my daughter in particular, I'll be like, yeah, she won't do that, but she will. She's going to do stuff like this. I'm going to have no idea. That's just the nature of being a parent and being a kid. And How I just, old is she? She's eight. She's eight. Yeah. yeah. And I'm already seeing like little hints of adolescence, you know, like little flashes of what's to come. I want to be good with it. I, I don't want to freak out, but it's like, it's a little hard to watch. You know, <laughs> they're yeah. difficult years. Yeah. I see my friends who have adolescent children or children on the cusp and you have to, uh... Yeah, I see them just trying very hard. They're just embracing these new people in the house who are making their own decisions and, and well, just forming themselves. Well, that's the thing. You, you kind of got to let you, you got to give your mm. kid some leeway to make mistakes. I think it's a mistake. I, I, I just hope they don't do anything too stupid. To, that's, <laughs> that's basically my project. Just don't do anything too stupid. Just don't go on a bus with some strange guy to the beach for five days, please. <laughs> one of the, one of the most important decisions, and I mention it in my book because it, that my sister and I both made when, when I, well, I made it when I was 14 and my sister, I think was 10 was becoming vegetarian. And I remember at the time, my father especially was worried. And as I say, the character in the novel, but he said, you're going to stop growing and later you can decide, but now you, you really should just continue eating what you've been eating. And, um, what prompted this? Well, we've been, we always loved animals. And then, um, and animals figure, I mean, it's, you know, figure, uh, largely into your novel. Yeah. And, uh, my editor said, Chloe, there's 37 mentions of dogs in your book. <laughs> Maybe you want to take some, of that. but it's a leitmotif for life in Mexico. Every turn, there's a stray dog. So my dog is, uh, from Mexico. Oh, really? Yeah. From Mexico. She was rescued in Baja. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I have to say hello to her again on my way out. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, cause it's interesting. My wife, when she was like nine, I think became a vegetarian. I became a vegetarian when I was 20 and I have a, like a strong animal sensitivity too. But for you, you were a kid, you were seeing these animals. I think once you view animals as having, I don't know, what, what is it? Like an appreciation for their life. Yeah, and, I mean, like the ability to suffer for me, I can't compute. I'm just like, why? I why would their life be worth less exactly than mine? Mm -hmm. I could yeah. never, I could never make sense of it. 
and I still, you know, I, I can't go back. So yeah. you just, you held fast as a child, even though your dad was trying to push you back? Only, yeah, at first. And then he, he realized that we were so steadfast and, and then he respected our decision. So he's, and then he saw that, well, I don't think we're ever going to grow very tall anyway. So <laughs> probably, but, um, my mother researched, you know, how a new dietary regime for us. And, but anyway, so those years, and that's, um, and both yeah, well, have you, both of you stuck with it. A hundred percent. I can't now I'm mostly vegan, but it's hard uh, to be a hundred percent vegan. Yeah. Cause I try and I, it's like, you know, you take a bite of something, you realize there's an ingredient in there that, so I always say like, I bat like 98%. That's pretty <laughs> yeah. good though. No, that's very good. Yeah. yeah. London, I'm at home. I'm completely vegan and socially sometimes vegetarian just cause, although I do eat honey, I'd find honey to give up and hard to give up. That's just but, bees though. <laughs> Do they suffer by the making of honey? Well, as a friend said, you're nicking their food. I said, well, I do think um, some do suffer. Well, that, what they do now is when they extract the beekeepers, when they extract the honey, they just replace it with glucose. So, and often a few, there are always a few casualties. Mm. But the dairy industry is, is really vile. Yeah. And now if this nightmare of Brexit happens in England, then there's also going to be mass slaughter of livestock because there can be fewer exports, exports to the EU. Oh. Is that gonna, like, what's going to happen with Brexit? Do you have a sense of that? Every day, at, um, the winds shift. So yeah, there, just today, like a bunch of MPs left the Labour Party. Yeah, which um, I I don't blame them, but it's not helping the situation either. Right, right. Um, I do find Corbyn quite an unfortunate leader of the Labour Party, and and even though he is vegetarian, <laughs> and apparently his the person he'd appointed as shadow minister of agriculture as a vegan, which would be really cool to have a vegan in charge of agriculture yeah, and do away with factory farming forever. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I, well, the situation here, the situation in the UK, it's hard to know. But I feel like they're pretty tied. A lot feel, of parallels. I yeah. think what happened with the Brexit vote and the, you know, the leave, uh, and what happened with our election in 2016 are part of the same op. I'm just mm -hmm. going to say it. Yep. And a I foreign influence also. So my question uh, to you as somebody who lives in London is like, is there a recognition among the public in England that this is the case? And is there a Mueller type investigation in the offing? Not in England. Hmm. Well, maybe quietly, but not at all with the same profile or energy as here. Is there going to be one, you think? I hope so, but... There's something called Cambridge Analytica, which is yeah. very tied to. It's a very, it's a very like uh, august name for a very, <laughs> for a very slimy institution. Um, you know, I just was talking to Roger McNamee, who you know spells out that whole thing. Oh, he does. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it, it, this is the problem with all this stuff is that it gets confusing, mm -hmm. and I think that's part of the design is trying to keep track of all this stuff it makes you feel like you're a conspiracy theorist and. You know, it's like the guy with the diagrams on the wall and the news clippings. Like you, to try to keep track of every single thread is a monumental project. Yeah. Uh, but I think at some point, I guess this is what storytellers are for. You need somebody or some group of somebody's to try to tease this all out and make it clear to people. Mm. And hopefully over time, like we're going to find out the truth of what happened with leave and what happened with 2016. And we're going to have like a reckoning and an agreed upon set of facts. 
But then, and one hopes, one just prays that the governments will act upon them because that's because there's already so much incriminating evidence here and also in England with the Leave campaign, and yet, right? There's all then there, all, all this stuff is in the public domain. Yeah. This is a big frustration. Um, so one has to just forge ahead with one's projects and try to feel like there's hope somewhere in the world. Well, I mean, I think if, like, art is as good a place as any to focus one's energies when you're living in a time as chaotic as this one. I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, there's mm -hmm. only so, there's only so much, there's only so much anger that you can feel. Mm -hmm. There's only so much tweeting that one can do, yeah. <laughs> which you don't do any of. No, you don't like any of that stuff. I hate social media. I have an aversion to social media. But... Why? You know, it, it's, it demystifies everyone or it moves the mystery. I, th I think it's, imp I think it's very important for political activism. I do. I, I think it's essential, but in terms of, um, say self-promotion or I don't know, my heart sinks when I see writers who have Twitter accounts and they're just posting reviews of their books and promoting themselves every five minutes. And I don't know, let other people do the work. And, but, um, and yeah, it's a, I'm sure it's an endless distraction. It would be for me if I had, but more than anything, and it was with Facebook too, it just felt it demystified people so much. And I like to have my own ideas and create my own image of someone. Like I don't need to see your breakfast <laughs> every day. Yeah. It's, uh, but I do realize it's worth its value too. Well, I mean, I think that for me, it's a news aggregator. I'm only mm -hmm. on Twitter. Which like, I say like somewhat smugly. It's like the only one, I'm only addicted to one. The rest of you fools are addicted to multiple platforms, but um, it's a way for me to keep track of the news in like a, an efficient way. But it's also like an endless distraction. And I'm learning more and more that it's um, the agitation and the sense of disease that one feels often when one is engaged with one of these social media platforms is by design. Mm -hmm. They're actually engineered to incite that and to, um, you know, to, to keep ratcheting up the tension because that keeps you coming back. Mm -hmm. And that makes me feel like a slave, you know? And it just, and then you go, Oh my God, like I'm being played. So that's sort of dawning on me. I'm reckoning with that. I'm going to quit eventually. And I'm going to be just like you. <laughs> completely disengaged from all this stuff when you're writing your book i you know i'm trying to write it right now um i'm doing okay but i think i'd do even better if i wasn't tweeting two hours a day or whatever it is that i'm doing um so speaking of which you're on tour for this book like is that your focus right now or are you working on another book you got another project in the works i've started i'm working on the next novel and <clears throat> so that's my main focus That'll be my main focus when I return to England. How far along are you? Well, I have it all mapped out, but um, I only, I've only written around 20,000 words. Well, that's not nothing. No, that's not nothing. And considering this novel is only 47,000 words, maybe I'm already halfway. <laughs> that's a beautiful length. I think I, I love like a 200-page mm -hmm. novel, mm -hmm. but one that still feels like it's got some mm -hmm. heft. Mm -hmm. like, I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm now, I'm currently judging some, a literary prize in England called the Folio Prize. So I have to read 80 books by mid-March of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. And some of them, there's one or two beautifully distilled novels into, my favorite novel so far, is, so far has been the shortest one. But, um, which one is that? Can you say? 
I guess well, I don't know. As a judge, is one allowed to speak? I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Maybe I'll tell you after we finish. That. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but there are others that <clears throat> I just feel very bloated, and <clears throat> and there is something seductive about <clears throat> sprawling narratives as well. But well, this is yeah. I don't want to be too judgmental yeah. because I do think there is. A Everyone place. has their own style, of course. Yeah. But personally, mm-hmm. I can't get past this mental thing where it's like if I can't say what I need to say in 200 pages, I better really have something to say. Do you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like after 200 pages, I'm like, maybe I, maybe I'm just rambling at this point. I don't know. I kind of prize efficiency mm-hmm. of thought. Mm-hmm. Need to end restraint. Yeah. There's something yeah, attractive. There. Well, it's a delight to meet you. I appreciate you making time on your tour you to come talk me. to me. Congratulations on your book, on all of your success. And I wish you well reading 80 books between now and March, which sounds like that's a big task. I've well, already read 65. So. How many books a week do you read? Three or four. Oh my God. You're a machine. <laughs> I don't have a choice. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's uh, it's great to meet you. Thank you, Brad. Okay. That is Chloe Regis. Her new novel is called Sea Monsters, available now from Catapult Press. I do not think she has a website. I looked, you know, I gave a cursory glance. I don't think there's a website. I don't think there's any social media. I think she's one of these wise people who avoids all of it. But she does have a Wikipedia page, and she does have, uh, I believe, an IMDb page. She's acted in movies, I think done a lot of things. Chloe Eregis, the novel one more time is called Sea Monsters. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget, this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. So, coming up on Wednesday, I have Richard Chim. I believe it's Richard Chim coming up next. That is correct. So stay tuned for that one. Richard Chim making his second uh, appearance on the podcast. Otherwise, I hope you're having a, a pleasant Sunday. Or, you know, you could be listening to this on any day of the week. So wherever you are, I hope you're having a pleasant experience. I've actually got somebody coming over. I'm not going to say who because I want to keep it a secret for at least a little while. But I've got to you know, do an interview. Okay.